Parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Genius though he is. Martin Scorsese would be the first to admit the enormous debt of gratitude he owes to one Thelma Schoonmaker. For Thelma is the woman who has edited over 20 of his movies, from Raging Bull and Casino to Gangs of New York and The Departed. So it is truly an honour to welcome her to Soundtracking, the weekly screen music podcast with me, Edith Bowman. As you'd hope, she has some absolutely fantastic stories to share with us. Thelma was married to the late Michael Powell, one half of the legendary partnership Powell and Pressburger. Their work influenced Martin hugely and indeed it was he who introduced Thelma to her would-be husband. It thus seems fitting that we begin with a cue from one of their films, the prologue to Black Narcissus. It is an absolute honour to have you on the show. And I I feel like um, we almost need a, a whole series of, of chapters to, to talk through your wonderful career. I have to say, first of all, congratulations on your BAFTA thank you, Fellowship. Thank you so much. It's so lovely to be joining Marty and, and my husband, Michael Powell, yes. and Emmerich Pressburger as as people who are in the fellowship, to say nothing of people like Hitchcock and <laughs> so many others. Wow. What does it mean to you to be recognised like that? Well, it's very important for me because of how much I became infatuated with the work of Powell and Pressburger because Marty infected me with this yeah. love of their movies. And then having married him and now responsible for the legacy of Michael Powell, one of the two great filmmakers of that partnership, I am very invested in, in British movies. Yeah. And they've been a huge influence on Scorsese, enormous influence on him and therefore on me. You know, the first thing that Marty does when he meet someone that he's going to work with, an actor, for example, or me, when we started <laughs> Raging Bull, is pelt them with the Powell Pressburger movies, you know, and that's what he did with me. Yeah. I remember one night, he, we were working on Raging Bull and we worked long hours and, you know, usually he, we just work, 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 and he said, I want you to go in the, the living room and look at this video of this movie. I was always afraid to see, I know where I'm going, made in your country. Yeah. Um, because I was afraid I wouldn't like it, and if I ever saw a film by Powell and Pressburger, I wouldn't like I would kill myself. So <laughs> he said, I want you to go see this. I've just discovered another of their masterpieces, and he sent me in to, to watch it. Of course, I fell in love with it, and it's being restored now wow. by his film foundation, Scorsese's film foundation, right? So I then became enamored of it, and then Scorsese introduced me to Michael Powell, little knowing that we would get married. Nobody ever thought we would get married. And so now I'm responsible for his legacy, and I am so imbued with the British film. So being asked to become 
a member of this fellowship means a great deal to me. I think it's such a wonderful thing, passing things down, you know, yes. in terms of reminding people about, you know, we're so in the now, I think, yes. that it's so important to, to look back. And I remember watching the Red Shoes for the first time and just <laughs> as a child yeah. and kind of going, wow, yeah. you know, and, and the music and the emotion captivating me and just Absolutely. taking me on a journey. <laughs> And it's important for those films to be not retold, but just be reminded about them uh, to new generations. And now there's a new restoration of A Matter of Life and Death. It was done by Grover Crisp at yeah. Sony, and we showed it to the young people in our office, the interns and some of the younger people, and they all came out with stars in their eyes. I couldn't hmm. believe it. They were so in love with the movie. And... They said it's not dated at all. Not at all. And there were some wonderful things in it. That, uh, I don't know how well you know the movie, but for those of your listeners who do, th there's a jury in heaven. And at one point, uh, the person who's defending David Niven cart, says, yeah. can I please, I want to change the jury to current <laughs> Americans uh, because they were historical Americans. The new jury are all immigrants, every single one of them, except there's a, a black man who who is a GI, a, a, you know, a man who's yeah. been fighting in World War II. So all of them are immigrants. And for us today in Trump America, so that was the kids really loved that. They said, oh my God, that's so great. Yeah, that film has an extraordinary opening too. This is the universe. Big, isn't it? Thousands of suns, myriads of stars, separated by immense distances and by thin floating clouds of gas. The starlight makes the gas transparent, and where there are no stars, it appears as dark, obscuring clouds, like that great black cone over there. Hello, there's a nova, a whole solar system exploded. Someone must have been messing about with the uranium atom. No, it's not our solar system, I'm glad to say. Ah, those are called a globular cluster of stars. Rather fine. Down here in the right-hand corner, see that little chap rather like a Boy Scout's badge? It's a mass of gas expanding at thousands of cubic miles a minute. Here we are, we're getting nearer home. The moon, our moon, in the first quarter. And here's the Earth, our Earth, moving around in its place, part of the pattern, part of the universe. Reassuring, isn't it? It's night over Europe, the night of the 2nd of May, 1945. That point of fire is a burning city. It had a thousand bomber raid an hour ago. And here, rolling in over the Atlantic, is a real English fog. I hope all our aircraft got home safely. 
Even the big ships sound frightened. Listen to all the noises in the air. This was their final power. You can see that the influence that their works had on Marty, you know, in terms of this kind of wonderful thing that he does where he approaches truth, you know, it's not just about good and evil, it's about all the stuff in between and about people aren't just one or the other. That's right. They're real people. That's where most of us are. Yeah. And that's why there are no heroes or villains in the movies of either Powell and Pressburger or Marty. They're not interested in that because that's not what most people are like. Uh, Now, if there are, you know, I mean, Marty has this great gift in De Niro to make you care for someone who is behaving badly. (laughs) But, But that person acknowledges that usually at the end of the film, you know. So, but that's what they're, they're interested in finding out what makes them tick. And mm. Marty says the films of Powell and Pressburger are in my DNA. That's how strongly they have influenced him. He thinks about them every day. God knows, he's raised the money to have all these restorations done, it's which amazing. are very expensive for the Technicolor ones, the three-strip Technicolor ones. Yeah. Red Shoes and um, Blimp and then Tales of Hoffman. Yeah. So uh, I'm so grateful to him for the way he's treasured and Mm. celebrated these two. What was it that made you want to become a film editor? Well, it was sort of accidental because I was born in Algeria because my father worked for an oil company. Both my parents were American. They had met in Paris. My brother was born there. I was born in Algeria. Then we were evacuated out of Algeria right away a year later because of the North African invasion in World War II. The British and the Americans invaded North Africa, so we had to leave. We ended up on the island of Aruba in the Caribbean, where I lived until I was 15, came back to the United States. I wanted to become a diplomat because I had lived abroad, and I loved it, and yeah. So I studied political science and the Russian language. I took the exam at the State Department, that's wow. our foreign service, and I passed the exam, but they said I was too liberal-minded <laughs> politically. <laughs> they said, you're going to be very unhappy here because you can't, for example, say apartheid is bad until the government tells you you can. So they said, why don't you go to the U.S. Information Agency, which is like your British council, I think. Yeah. So I said no, and I went back. I was doing a little graduate work at Columbia University, and I just saw an ad in the paper in the New York Times that said, willing to train assistant film editor. And I had seen these movies uh, on the, a million-dollar movie, this wonderful program in America, that Marty was seeing the films of Paul and Pressburger on. Yeah. And I had seen Blimp there, and I, I didn't know I was going to meet that man later and marry him. <laughs> wow. But um, it was so, so stunning. Mm. I, I was so struck by it. Message from HQ. War starts at midnight. You have your orders? Tell them in. Oh, and tell them to make it like the real thing. What do you mean by the real thing, Spud? Well, obviously, our loss is divided by 10 and the enemy is multiplied by 20. Yes, sir. That's all for now. Sir. Anything for me, sir? No, no, nothing else. War starts at midnight. We know. They know. We attack. They counterattack. Like the real thing, my Aunt Fanny. Like the real thing. Like the real thing. Sergeant Hawkins, section commanders. So war starts at midnight, does it? Sir? We attack at six. 
Take all the Tommy guns and four, no, three trucks, section leaders with Tommy guns, arm the men with bombs, rifles, beds. Tommy, sir. From your section, Rice, Unsworth. The two Owens. Yes, the two Owens. Now be it Toots and Cochran. Not Cochran, sir. All right, I'll leave it to you. Stuffy, who are the biggest toughs in your lot? Bill Wall, Wimpy, Matapan, and yes. Popeye. Right, yours, Robin? Frank, Skeet, Dougie Stewart, sir. Chappy, Geordie, sir. Busty, Porky Sims, and Pat Sullivan, sir. Die Evans, sir. Oh, Die Evans, we must have him. Luke, you. All right, get going. Excuse me, sir. Yeah? Did you say that we attacked before war is declared? Yes, like Pearl Harbor. I'll get going. Well, oh, by the way, there's just one stop at the book. I got a date there with Marta Hari. Careless talk? Yeah. Now, Scram. Well, I'll take this job. So this man was butchering the great films of Italian filmmakers, French filmmakers, taking a reel out of Rocco and his brothers, the great mm -hmm. Visconti movie. And I had to do the actual physical work of it. And I said, you can't do that. And he said, oh, nobody's looking at these things at 2 o'clock in the morning. But Marty was. I quit because I said, I can't work with this man. He's a monster. So I saw a little thing saying New York University had a six weeks course and that's all I could afford at that time. I thought I'll just I'll just take it and see what happens. I wasn't even on Marty's team. They split us up into ten. But someone had butchered the negative of his movie <laughs> accidentally. She didn't know. They said the professor said, Does anyone can anyone help Scorsese fix this? And I said, Well I've done some negative work. I'll try. So for forty hours I tried to fix it because it had to be done to enter it in on a contest. That's when we first met. He had been up for days. He was <laughs> practically dead. And um, so I just said, okay, you lose six, you lost six frames here. Maybe we can add them on the head. And that's how we met. And wow. he thought, I think maybe I can trust this woman to help me do what's right for my movies. Yeah. And that was the beginning. So um, I, it was all accidental. If I hadn't you know, See decided not to, 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 to go to the USIA. If I hadn't seen that ad, mm -hmm. if I hadn't quit that job that moment and gone to that summer course, he wouldn't have been there the next year and I never would have met him and my life would have been very different. <laughs> Whoa! It was just but luck. And then, for having introduced me to this wonderful man who became my husband. What a so, lovely turn of events. Yeah. In terms of and now then, that you are continuing his legacy. Uh, that's right. That's I mean, just what fabulous. more could you ask for in life? Yeah. I've had it all. Yeah. I have had it all. I'm so lucky. I'm going to ask you to dive into some of these films, though, if that's okay. Can we start yeah, with sure. Raging Bill, which I watched oh. last night? And, I mean, <laughs> it's just... I remember as well watching it. Maybe I think I was about 21 when I watched mm. it for the mm. first time. And still a beautiful, immersive experience watching that film. And that starts straight away with that opening shot. Slow as he's so dancing beautiful. in that ring and Slow the music. Motion. Yeah, the music. Oh my God. So, so good. What's been wonderful is the you know, there are some films, some Marty films, there's a composer attached. There are some that there aren't. There are some where it's um, existing music. There's a bit of Rolling Stones, and it's quite funny. I had the pleasure of interviewing Mick Jagger, and I said to him, I said, tell me, 
when Martin Scorsese's making a film, does he still have to ask permission to use a Rolling Stones track? And he went, of course he does, <laughs> which I loved. But the use of that particular track, the uh, Cavalleria Basticana, the, yeah, the Mascagni, it sets a tone, it immediately takes you somewhere. You know, Marty would hear that, he said, through the windows of the tenement building he was living in, in this Italian-American sort of ghetto, very strongly Sicilian, and he would hear opera and things coming through the windows. That's why in Raging Bull, the, the level of the music is much lower. When you get to something like Goodfellas, it's right up front rock, you know. Yeah. But he's dealing with other music that he was hearing as he was growing up. And that piece, why he understood that that piece was going to be the soul of the movie, that is Jake LaMotta's theme. interesting is they kept trying the studio didn't want to pay for it so it was the same with music you know the music oh yeah. costs so much money oh, that absolutely it's, and they yeah. kept giving us another version try this version how about this version how about that version how about that version and marty and i would listen to them and he would say nope i want that one and they would say but we can't afford it and try this one and try you know, they tried forever and but he just stuck to his guns we talk a little bit about that process of that film and when Marty brought you in? I mean, I want to know why it was black and white, mm. first of all, why he decided... Michael Powell. There we go. That's why. <laughs> I'll, show, I'll tell you why. I had worked on Marty's first feature film, uh, Who's That Knocking? And then he went to Hollywood to bust in and he wanted me to come and work with him then. He was still teaching me to edit. You know, Marty mm. taught me everything I know. I knew nothing about editing. And so he wanted me to come and work with him, but the union would not allow me to work because they said she has to start three years as an apprentice, five years as an assistant, and then she can become an editor. And I refused to do that. I was already, you know, I had edited the one film with him. I had been nominated for an Oscar for Woodstock. <laughs> I was not going to go work as an apprentice. Yeah. So I did other things for almost 10 years. God. Worked on documentaries and things, yes. And then on Raging Bull, he called me and he said, listen, we got you in the union. Erwin Winkler, the producer of that movie, just forced me into the union. So then I could work with him again. Yeah. So that's why I started right away. Yeah. I had never worked on a big Hollywood movie. We were on a Hollywood lot, um, you know, big stages and fight mm -hmm. sequences and all these things. I had two assistants. I never, I always put my own <laughs> trims away. I never had an assistant before. And... Watching that movie get made, the dailies, I mean, I couldn't take my eyes off De Niro when I was looking at the dailies, and I could see immediately it was going to be 
an astounding movie. Yeah. But the reason it's made in black and white is that when Scorsese finally found Michael Powell and Emmerich, because they had influenced him so much and nobody knew where they were, nobody wrote articles about them, mm. they said, why is it we don't know and how did two people make a movie? And so he came to the Edinburgh Film Festival where he got an award for Alice and they said to him, who do you want to give you the award? And he said, Michael Powell. And they said, who? Nobody knew who he was anymore. Oh I mean, it was unthinkable. So Marty then came to London and he said, does anybody know where Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger are? And finally, Michael Kaplan, who was doing publicity for 2001 for yeah. Kubrick, said, I know where he is. So he set up a lunch and Marty started asking Michael all these questions. How did you do this? And how this, this shot is so incredible. This, and Michael Powell writes in his autobiography, the blood started to run in my veins again. And he was destitute. He had no money at that point. He hadn't made film in years. It was tragic, you know, tragic. Mm -hmm. And Marty just brought it all back, along with Kevin Goff Yates at the British Film Institute, Ian Christie, who's going to be with me at the awards, Great. and Bertrand Tavernier, the French film director who wrote one of the only good reviews of Peeping Tom. <laughs> and, um, so they had all been trying, and then Marty was able with his, you know, uh, as a big director in America, to bring Michael t over to America. Emmerich wasn't able to come with him, enter Peeping Tom in the New York Film Festival, mm -hmm. uh, get it distributed again, and the whole thing began to come alive again. I got off the track now. Where were we? We were, no, we were just about... Oh, we, the we, black and white. Yeah, okay. black and white, yeah. So <laughs> when, when he brought Michael to America, they were preparing to do Raging Bull. De Niro had been training for two years as a fighter, and Marty was going to the uh, gym where he was training, and designing the choreography of the fights as he watched Bob. And so my husband wanted to be shown where Mean Streets had been made uh, because he, he thought Mean Streets was a, a masterpiece. He mm. said, why isn't it being run ev every day in New York somewhere? Um, <laughs> and he said, I want to see where you made it. So Marty was taking him around and then he took him to the gym and they were looking at the, the stuff and Michael said, you know, there's something wrong with the red gloves that Bob is wearing. And Marty said, my God, you know what? I always saw fights in black and white. I'm going to make the movie in black and white. So it was Michael Powell. Wow, that's amazing. Do you have, um, because it's such an important part of the editing process, the, the, you know, the music and knowing the role of the music. Is it in the background? Is it within the scene? Is it within the narrative? Is it, uh, is it taking the narrative on a journey or the emotion yeah. on a journey? There are so many roles that the music takes and such an important yeah. part of your job yeah. to yeah. navigate well, that I as mean, well. He, he designs it and then I help him carry it out. You know, sometimes it's a, a, a little bit of an agony because we lay the piece in first on our first cut, you know, and it's just wonderful. And then we shorten the scene and then we have to make <laughs> music edits and things like that. Yeah. So that's more where I come in, but it's his, they're his ideas. However, what he did on a movie like Casino, for example, we had a whole wall covered with, he had seven pieces of music he wanted to try for this scene, seven pieces for this scene. So we listened to them all against the image and usually there's one or two that just, you say, oh, that's it. Yeah. Those two are the ones we should choose between. This one doesn't work, that one doesn't work. But he had an elaborate chart. <laughs> he thinks so carefully about these things. He plans things so carefully. I love that Frogman Henry track, Ain't Got No Home. Wonderful. Ooh, ain't got no home. I know place to roam. Ain't got no home. I know place to roam. I'm a lonely boy, I ain't got a home, I got a voice, I love to sing. 
Sometimes he actually shoots <clears throat> to a piece of music because Michael Powell taught him that. Wow. In Black Narcissus, yes. there is an incredible sequence where the mad nun tries to kill Deborah Carr. And Michael decided to have the composer uh, create a piece of music and he shot to the actual music. Mm -hmm. Every shot was calculated for a certain number of bars of the music and Marty was just, my husband called it the composed film. that idea because he always says the music is the master. In the Red Shoes, Lermontov says the music is the master. And my husband really believed that. So Marty was so impressed by this composed music piece, the, the section of the movie. In Goodfellas, he shot a sequence to Layla. Mm -hmm. That's when De Niro was disposing of all the bodies. And that is deliberate influence of Michael Powell. <laughs> job because he was shooting on the set I had to then when we were editing make sure it was still fitting the same way because <laughs> yeah. you know depending on the length of the shot it doesn't always uh, but that was a direct influence from Michael Powell mm -hmm. and Marty loves that idea oh he's just brilliant with music what are you doing you A lot, are you? You're no, not, you're not. No. A, I don't have time. Yeah. 
and he really wants me to have perspective. In yeah. other words, to be looking at it cold mm -hmm. um, and not influenced by what he's being influenced by, like the, 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 the actor is sick, the horse just fell over, yeah. his son is going down, uh, we have to get this shot now in the next five minutes. He doesn't want me influenced by that, and I frankly don't have the time. I love going to the <laughs> set because I love watching him work, and I love the actors, and I've become friends with them, but it's more important for me to look at it with a cold eye, and if there's anything I feel is not working right or something, then I tell him, mm. and he'll redo it if he has to, but that hardly ever happens, hardly ever. But he wants me to have a colder, not a colder eye, that's not fair, more perspective on it, yeah, and tell him eye. in the dailies, our most important time for me with him in the beginning is listening to what he thinks about what he shot. So he's constantly talking to me. I'm taking notes like rapid fire. I'm telling him what I think. And from that, I start the editing uh, from those very strong reactions he has. And he's very tough on himself. He has very high standards. So he will not accept anything that he feels is not good enough, you know. And he keeps shooting until he gets it. But th what he's saying to me, because his whole conception for the movie is also what he's telling me, what I really want to do, I want to move the movie this way, I want to move that character this way or that way, uh, is so important. I wish people could hear what he's saying. Yeah. Because it's so brilliant. It's that thing that I, that I love about, one of the many things I love about his filmmaking is the way that, and that's down to the relationship the pair of you have, is about being patient with things as well and, and it not being about fast edits and it being right. about allowing the audience to react to what they've just seen you know and giving them a time to have an emotional response to something. Very very good of you to, to recognize that because Michael Powell always said to us never explain always think that your audience is ahead of you and you try and stay ahead of them that was one of the best pieces of advice he ever gave us and Marty in this movie is carrying that out Irishman he does not want to explain he wants you to figure it out and what the actors are emanating is what you should feel. So you don't have to know the whole history. It's about a famous union man who was killed and named James Hoffa who was killed. And it's not really about all the facts about him, no. He's just a part of the thing mm -hmm. and we're just touching on it and you have to figure out the relationship of the mafia to that and all. And people are getting it. Yeah. They're really reacting to it. It's a gamble, you know, we didn't expect it, but wow, I mean, it's... <laughs> <laughs> but even with the music as well and the choices, whether it be, you know, an existing track or a piece of score, because I think some people can manipulate an audience with certain score and kind of go, this is how you should feel now. Whereas he doesn't it's, want it's to not, tell you. exactly. But he hates when people are trying to tell you what to think. And he'll turn a movie off as soon as he sees that, he'll say, they're trying to tell me what to think. I don't want that. Yeah. I want the audience to figure out what's going on. Even, I think, before Michael told him, never explain and always be ahead of your audience. I think Marty had that in his gut. Mm. Don't tell me what to think with a piece of sentimental music. Yeah. He'll go against the grain a lot or he'll go with something so rich and big against something terrifying. And so that collision is what makes it work. Yeah. You know, and he has a gut instinct for that. He's amazing. And even that kind of goes through to you know, I didn't realize how much improvisation he oh. encourages. And I've heard you Huge. talk brilliantly about that scene in, in Rage and Bill with De Niro and Pesci at the, at the table. In the kitchen. In the kitchen, in actual, in his house, in his actual house that he That's lived right. in. And you were kind of like, that might be the hardest scene I've <laughs> yeah. ever had to edit. It was. I want you to hit me in the face. What? I want you to hit me in the face. Forget about it. No, I want you to hit me in the face. Go ahead. Go ahead. Take your best. Chef, forget about it. I ain't doing it. 
Come on, we have fights all the time. When you worry now, you're gonna hit me in the face. Hit me in the face. Go ahead. No, what are you afraid? Afraid of what? Come on, I'll be a little faggot. Come on, hit me. I'm a faggot. Take your best shot, man. Come on, Jack, huh? You're gonna be a real jerk when I'm gonna punch you in the face. Hey, Joey, did I not tell you just to do it? Now I'm telling you, you gotta do it. I ain't hitting you. Hey, I'm your little brother, Joey. I'm telling you something. I know what you said. I ain't doing it. I don't care if you get mad. I ain't doing it. Fucking nut. Not doing it. I'm not doing it. I don't have any gloves anyway. What am I gonna hit you with? Table? I ain't doing it. Who's that over there? What? Use that. Wrap it around your hand. How many times I gotta tell you? Not too many more. Go ahead. Right, go ahead. You want me to hit you? I want you to be with everything you got. I want you to fucking lay me out. Go ahead. You sure? Yeah. All right. Harder. Yeah? You throw a punch like you take it up the ass. Come on. Harder. 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 That's hard. You fuck. What do you take want? It take it off. Ah, oh, come on. You want to stop now? Take That's enough. That... Come on. Right, come fuck on. around, man. Come on. Good. Right. I'm going to smack you again. Throw it again. It's enough. That's enough. Uh, hard, hard. Nah, your fucking cuts are opening and everything. What are you trying to prove? What does it prove? I love improvisation, and that's interesting. There are some movies we've made that are not improvised. For example, Silence is not. Uh, obviously, Kundun yeah. is not. But there are other of our films like uh, Age of Innocence. Wolf of Wall Street. No, you know, yeah. Oh, oh, no, so Wolf much, has so much in, too much yeah. in yeah. And this movie, Irishman, has yeah. tremendous. Casino had tremendous. You know, Goodfellas had tremendous. Yeah. And I love it because uh, when I was learning how to make films, I was learning a lot through documentary, and there you get a ton of footage that is unstructured, and you have to make it work so it has power of narrative and the audience can respond to it. That's your job, to, to take all this footage and uh, shape it. So mm. like a sculptor shapes a raw lump of clay, that's your job. So I loved figuring all that out. So when I was given all this improvisation, it was similar to that. And I love figuring out the puzzle. That was hard because he only had one camera. Now he never shoots improvisation without two. And Is that after you said to him, it's gonna like, come on, help me out, Mark. Yeah, no, <laughs> no, he knew that. Yeah. It, it was, no, it wasn't, that was not the reason. It was because we were in the actual location. Small, they couldn't get two yeah. cameras in the room. He always shoots with two cameras yeah. because then, then I can do it much more easily. So that was hard, but I love doing it. I love doing it. And I can see where I'm a little, I'm seeming something together that's a little, <laughs> most oh, people can't on, see Sam. it, but uh, I see You're it. Perfectionist. I see it. Right. But now with, you know, the improvisation and I mean, first of all, Pesci and Bob are so incredible improvisers, but now Al Pacino that we've never worked with before is an incredible improviser. And he and Bob are just amazing oh together. My. Oh my God. I can't tell you the acting in this movie. Due to Marty is incredible. And I noticed that really great actors actually listen to each other. Mm -hmm. A lot of actors are waiting for their cue line. They're listening and they know, oh, well, when the person says, I have to go to the bathroom now, they say, oh, that's when I say my line, right? These guys are listening. I said to Marty, they're listening to each other. <laughs> uh, it's, and they're... Oh. <laughs> it's unbelievable, unbelievable. I watched The Departed again the other night and I'd forgotten how fantastic that film is. <laughs> Not that I'd forgotten, it's just, you know, I, it's a while since I've seen it and God, it was great to watch. And there's something just really um, brilliant about the, the music used in that. There's the yes. scene 
the police academy, which is Howard um, Shore's cue, Cops or Cops or Criminals, which is a beautiful piece of score, and it's perfect for that kind of where you're seeing Leo and Max's characters kind of go through the rung of the police academy. Howard is wonderful because Howard is willing. A lot of composers would not want to uh, work with a director who is scoring the movie himself partially. Yeah. But Howard has always been great about yeah. that. He he's doesn't done a mind. lot of films with. And he's he works terrifically with us, um, and so that that's really great. You have to have someone who understands that Marty doesn't need to be told by a composer, "I don't want you putting music." Oh, really? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, uh, that's I'm. You know, I'm going to do it, so you better get used to it. <laughs> you know, you were talking about how each film is very different in terms of yes. where the music sits, also in kind of the level of it. And almost like the first act of this film, it feels like there is music throughout the entire first act. Yeah. Some of it is really evident. Some of it is, is so right. low in the mix, but it's there. Well, it's wonderful you're so interested in this because I think it's so important. And and the level of the music in always in our movies. You know, I do all the temp mixing uh, while we're doing all our cuts with my wonderful fellow editor, Scott Brock. Marty's very specific about exactly how how loud the music should be. Yeah. Because he knows what a tremendous impact it has, mm -hmm. you know? It's great the way that it almost kind of it jolts you as well it, when it kind of suddenly appears in the scene where um, where Leo's character is in jail and it's the Dropkick Murphys track and it's kind of like, you're like that, you almost feel like you're going kind of through and that idea of there being constant noise within that environment for him as a character and it's replicated through the choice of song that it's so... You see, and Marty was just, he heard that. He listens to the radio a lot mm -hmm. when he gets up in the morning and when he's shaving and things. And uh, he heard that and that. He said to him that I'm going to use that right there. He knew that immediately. He always knew he was going to put that piece of music there. I'm a sailor pig and I lost my leg. I'm climbing up the top sails. I lost my leg.
I think, one of the greatest gifts for putting music to film of ever. And sometimes she's going against the grain, mm -hmm. sometimes she's going with it. In our current movie, uh, Irishman, he's using popular music of the time, which is, it's no, not, no rock and roll. Uh, Robbie Robertson is doing a little bit of stuff for the movie, but it's all highly popular music that was these guys would have been listening to. Yeah. And they're one that people just love. They're fantastic pieces of music, but they're not the kind of thing he usually scores with. He loves to score the movie himself with the music that he grew up with or loves currently. I mean, for example, in The Departed, that's all classical 20th century music that yeah. is not rock and roll yeah um for shutter i'm sorry but he scored that film you know he chose all those pieces he had to learn that music but he knew that was more appropriate than the music he used in the departed for example yeah so he has this incredible gift for how to put music it stuns me every time i never get over being surprised <laughs> by what he's going to do and he listened to a lot of people gave him suggestions and he listened very carefully to lots of music and he chose impeccably. Yeah, Brian Eno, Max Richter, John Adams. John yeah, incredible. I'm just wonderful, mm. wonderful. Gangs of New York was another one that I watched again this week and again I'd forgotten the sound of that film as well is just <laughs> kind of you know the marching and the Irish and you know that movie should be run every day now in New York because, and, and in America because it's about it, all the terrible things that are going on about immigration in our country mm -hmm. the Irish went through this you know the same thing the Italians that then when the Italians came the Irish did it to them. Uh, there is always this resistance to immigration. And where would we be without Frank Sinatra, hmm. Tony Bennett, Martin Scorsese? You know, th those are all people in the in the entertainment world, but how many others? Where would we be without that? So that movie is just exactly about what's going on now. Do you think he realizes how much his films are, are timeless in that respect, in that, you know, the stories that he's telling yeah. are, are resonating decades later? I hope he does, you know. I, I mean, I don't think he understands how highly people think of his work. And maybe that's better for an artist, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think, that, you know, it took a long time for some of our movies to be recognized. It took 10 years for Raging Bull. I'm not kidding. That movie did not do well when it came out. It was badly reviewed, and it took 10 years before it began its climb now, which is and it's so very high up in the list of American films. Um, and that was the case with all of his films, with the exception of Taxi Driver and Goodfellas, I would say. They took years before people understood them. Uh, because what Marty, he doesn't want to give you what you expect when you come into a theater. And mm -hmm. sometimes people want to go just to be entertained. And critics particularly, they're doing maybe eight films a week. Yeah. And so it took a long time for all of Marty's movies. Not so much now, something like Wolf is immediately accepted. Yeah. But it's so entertaining, you know? Yeah. King of Comedy for me is one of my favorites. 
Oh my god, I love that <laughs> film so much. Oh, that it's is the wildest thing. Romp. I'll never forget going on the set the first day and I saw this man talking to Marty and he had a duck what we call duck ass hair yeah. and he was wearing this weird suit and white <laughs> shoes and I thought who the hell is Marty talking to and then I went around and it was Bob and I was, oh my god <laughs> Rupert <laughs> you must have had a lot of fun at editing oh, that film god, yes oh wonderful yeah and that film was terribly reviewed and disaster when it came out now it's everybody's favorite movie and that happened to um Powell and Pressburger mm. a lot uh, because the films are unusual, but now they are lasting, they live. But as an artist, you have to hang on, and Marty went through some very tough times in Hollywood, really tough times with films like Taxi Driver, which almost never got made, fighting, 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 and also fighting to keep them from being ruined by the studio. Yeah, yeah, totally. And, but then you look at not just the film as well with something like Taxi Driver, but the score, you know, Bernard Herrmann's score for that film is just kind of, it's one of the, I've got it on vinyl, and it's, it's one of those go-to things for me. improvisation for a second again there's a scene in the departed that i heard you talk brilliantly about with um jack and and leo where he accuses him of being the rat and you're like leo had no idea you could only like going in with like fear going okay what's here we go but, him, uh, yeah, but jack surprising him with oh yeah so much and mainly scene. i you know i don't know whether i'm now you know i can't remember whether marty knew jack was going to do that pull the gun set the thing you know on fire uh i don't know Maybe they already had agreed on that, but Leo didn't know. And Marty likes to do that with an actor because those first impressions, and most of Leo's performance is take one. Wow. And believe me, for an actor to be working with someone doing that to him is really hard. And Leo's reactions were so good that uh, the natural reactions to what the hell is going on here <laughs> um, uh, were, so it was almost all take one. You accused me once. Put up with it. You accuse me twice. I quit. You pressure me to fear for my life, and I will put a fucking bullet in your head as if you were anybody else. Okay? You got something you wanna ask me? Look, he's 70 years old, Frank. I'm just saying, okay? One of you guys is gonna pop you. 
One of you guys is gonna pop yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As for running drugs, what the fuck are you doing? What are you doing? You don't need the money or the pain in the ass, and they will catch you. I haven't needed the money since I took Archie's milk money in third grade. Tell you the truth, I don't need pussy anymore either. But I like it. Point I'm making here is, Bill, I got this rat, this gnawing, eating fucking rat. And it brings up questions. You know, see, Bill, like, you're the new guy. Girlfriend. Why don't you stay in the bar that night I got your numbers? Social security numbers. Everybody's fucking numbers. Is this, is this something that you just want to go ahead and ask me? Because I'll give you the fucking answer, all right? Frank, look at me. Look at me. I'm not the fucking rat, okay? <laughs> Actually, in um, Cape Fear, the incredible scene where De Niro invites this girl to, um, oh, help me, what is her name? Juliette Lewis. Yeah, no, I'm yeah, sorry, yeah, Juliette yeah. Lewis. He invites Juliette Lewis to come to this school auditorium. He then approaches her and puts his finger in her mouth and all that stuff. She had no idea that was going to happen. And that's one of the few times that the assistant director on the set, Joe Reedy, called me up and he said, wait till you see what we got today. All take one. <laughs> what was going on was so incredible. So he, he does like to do that because you get that incredibly genuine reaction. Yeah. There's a great scene in Aviator as well with Kate Blanchett trying to entice Harrowed out of the, the oh, screening room. And just the red, the kind of color as well on that. Of, of You know, she's going to be giving me the award. Is she? Yes, oh I my asked God, for that's her. That's amazing. I asked for her because Marty couldn't come. I, I asked for her and she agreed. And I'm so, because we're friends and I just love cutting that performance. She is so brilliant. Well, I want to tell you something about that moment. It's interesting you say that because one of the things I will never forget is she was pleading with him, pleading with him to come out. And she was so into it. It was such a brilliant performance. And at the end of it, she was in another world. Mm. She was Kate Hepburn. And she just looked up at, at everybody on the set and she was trying to bring herself back into the world of movie making. And Marty even forgot to say cut. I mean, it was so stunning. And she said, did you want anything more or something like that? And I'll never forget that moment. It's one of my... I have outs that I keep. That moment was so incredible because she was so far gone to that part and bringing herself back, it was so moving. Everybody was just... <laughs> she was on the floor. Like that. I'm glad you pointed that out because uh, I think that's one of the most incredible. God, she is so wonderful. And, you know, she comes to the set so seated in the part. Yeah. Daniel Day-Lewis is like that too. Just, oh, uh, they're just seated in the part and they're, wow. Um, thank you so Thelma, much. thank you for your time. Yeah, yes. yes. Um, thank you, thank so, you so, so much. It's absolutely. an absolute pleasure. And please I hope say hello to John. And I told him, he's going to be there. Yeah. I I'll told him I haven't seen it yet. And he said, well, I'm going to show it to you. Well, I won't have time, but I'll see it when I get yeah. back. And Marty loved working on it with him and um, not working on it with him, but encouraging yeah, him course, and working with him on vinyl. Yeah. yeah. And Great. thank you so much. Absolutely. I hope we can do it again sometime. Boom, boom, boom. <laughs>
Speedo, he don't never take it slow. Well, now they all can call me Speedo, but my real name is Mister. Soundtrack to Goodfellas, that's Speedo by the Cadillacs. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with editor extraordinaire Thelma Schoonmaker. My huge thanks to Thelma for taking the time to talk to us. In case you were wondering, the John she referred to at the end is John S. Baird, director of Stan and Ollie. John's a previous guest on the show, so head to iTunes or edithbowman.com to listen to his episode and why not subscribe to the podcast while you're there? You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do keep telling everyone you know all about us. Next up, it's an absolute thrill to announce I'll be joined by Mary J. Blige to talk about her Netflix show, The Umbrella Academy, amongst many other things. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Yeah.